Um, is Becca McFerrin here this morning? Becca? She's probably in helping with the toddlers. Well, let me just say, on behalf of the elders and the staff, and really all those in Melanie Park, how much we appreciate what Becca has done. I can remember distinctly when she first came on to serve in that role as a nursery coordinator, she immediately injected kind of a, an exciting passion into that role, and it, it really kind of brought life into our staff team and, and the whole thing. It was just infectious, and she did such a great job. So I want to thank her in your presence for the job that she has done and I just encourage you to pray for that next person who comes that they might share that same passion. And if that's something that the Lord has laid on your heart, maybe you spend some time uh, thinking through that and praying about it. And we'd love to talk to you some more because it is such an important uh, part of what we do here at Melanie Park with all the families and young kids that we have here. So uh, just wanted to express our gratefulness for that job that she's done. Um, last week, we began a new series looking at uh, the I Am Statements of Jesus uh, As I mentioned, this series is designed for us to get to know Jesus. It's based on the understanding, the the conviction that the depth with which we know people determines the depth with which we relate to them in a relationship. In other words, the more you know about someone, the more meaningful that relationship can be. And Jesus makes it clear that he wants you to know everything about him. He wants you to experience a relationship with him that is meaningful. In fact, so meaningful that it's life changing. Now, as I say that, I want you to know that that's not just some pie in the sky statement that some preacher says on a Sunday morning. It's a reality of our lives if we stop and think about it. Just think of all the close relationships that you have. And if you consider those, you'll realize that those relationships are life changing. Think about your marriage relationship. It's Father's Day. Think about your relationship with your dad. Think about your relationship with your mom. Think about the relationship you might have with a best friend or maybe a coach that you've had. People who have really invested themselves into your life in a special way. Relationships like that shape our lives. They change us in some ways. And the same is true for our relationship with Jesus Christ. As we grow in our understanding of who He is, as we deepen that meaningful relationship that we have with Him, it changes how we live. A few weeks ago, you heard testimonies from people within our church body who essentially told you what it meant to have their life changed through a deepened relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, if we know Jesus in this way, It not only changes how we live, it really changes how we view life. This is particularly true when we go through difficult times. You'll remember last week we talked about knowing Jesus as the bread of life, right? Knowing that he is our daily sustenance. He gives us that life-providing power. He is always the one who uh, gives us just what we need. And we admitted together that it's always more than enough. This is important, especially when we come to to places, um, a dark place, places of despair. And I want you to know that that there are people here this morning that are in those places, and and I myself uh, have been there as well. There are situations where if it's up to me to get through it on my own strength, I know good and well that I don't have what it takes. 
And you may be in situations like that also. More than once, I've had to say, Lord, if you don't come through, this is not going to work. You're the bread of life. You give me what I need. Help me trust for you to do through me what I cannot do on my own. In fact, if I were to be honest with you, and I will, (laughs) I pray that prayer every Monday morning when I get ready to prepare to stand up here and do what I do on Sunday morning. Lord, help me do what I cannot do on my own, and I need you to do through me. Knowing Jesus makes a difference in how we live. This morning, we're going to talk about knowing Jesus as the light of the world. And once again, this should shape our life. It should change us. It should, uh, it, it should in some ways, interrupt us so that we view life differently. So before we look at that, let's pray together that that would be the case for all of us. Fathers, we come to you this morning. We make that request known to you. We ask that as you intended that we would get to know you, And specifically this morning that we would learn what it means to relate to you as the light of the world. And that in knowing you in this way, it changes how we live. It it, it changes how we view life. It changes how we relate to you. It changes how we relate to one another. I pray, Father, for each and every single person in this room that what we hear today through the revelation of your word changes us. That's our prayer. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you don't have to look very far in Scripture or read too much of the Bible to realize that it has a lot to say about light. In fact, right off the bat, in the third verse of the first book of the Bible, it says, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. And it was the light of day that that brought forth light, causing plants to grow and and animals to flourish. And this was all made possible when God spoke these things into existence. That's why the Bible often talks about the light of God's Word. Psalm 119.105 says, Your Word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word brought forth light, and it was his word that continues to light our path, ultimately leading us to salvation. Psalm 27, 1 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. You see, the Israelites came to know this truth in a very tangible way. We, We know this story well, but I want us to look at it together. Now, you'll notice this morning I'm going to put some slides up here, but most of the ones that we'll look at, I want us to look at them together. So go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And I want us to see in this passage how Israel came to know this truth of God's light in a very familiar and tangible way. Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. And it says, And the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and led them on the way. 
and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. I read this, and the first thing that came to my mind is this is kind of like the biblical version of GPS, right? God's positioning system. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This nation of people, now having grown to several million, had no ability to survive on their own without the navigating presence of God. Not only was he their sustenance, as we talked about last week, being that manna that fell from heaven, but he was also their hope. The light of his presence revealed the way of their deliverance. All throughout the Old Testament, in a variety of ways, God's presence is light, illuminating truth and revealing the way of salvation. Now, if you would turn over to John chapter 1. I want to show you how this same idea seen throughout the Old Testament now carries over into the New Testament. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness And the darkness did not comprehend it. I want you to notice what I see is a very purposeful correlation between the words of John's gospel and the words of the creation story that we find in Genesis. They each begin with the same phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis says. And now John here says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Genesis, as we've already said, God said, let there be light. And in John's gospel, God once again sends forth light to shine in the darkness. In him, the one whom God sent was life, John says. And his life was the light of men. Just as light brought forth life in creation, so does the divine light which is sent forth to bring life to mankind. John seems to be intentional in drawing on the well-known imagery of God's light, representing God's life-giving presence, His illuminating truth, and His revelation of the way of salvation. The point becomes explicit in the following verses. Look over at verse 6. It says, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, 
who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here it becomes clear that the light is no longer cloud. It's no longer a pillar of fire. This light is a person. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He will be full of grace and truth. Uh, illuminating the attributes of God in his life. And not because he's like God or he's some other God, but because he is the creator God. That's why I believe John was so intentional about using that creation language that we see in the book of Genesis. Because he wants you to know that Jesus Christ, the God who became flesh, is the creator God. Jesus Christ is God. And only because He is God do we have the ability to be adopted into His family, to be children of God through faith in Christ alone. See, the the light of God's presence is the way of salvation. It is evident throughout the Old Testament. It is carried into the New Testament. And now I want you to see how Jesus Himself even picks up on this imagery And takes it from there. If you would, turn over to John chapter 8. You're already in the book of John. Just flip over a few pages to John chapter 8. What is happening in this passage is an ongoing dialogue that actually began back in the beginning of John chapter 7. And we learned early on, actually the first verse of John chapter 7, that the setting is taking place in what was known as the Feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of lights all these names describe the same jewish festival this celebration was like passover in that it was one of the three major feasts that the people of israel would make this huge pilgrimage into the city of jerusalem and when they arrived during this particular festival everyone set up tents that they would live in for the next eight days. And so Jerusalem really became a virtual tent city. So that the Feast of Booze is just another way of saying the Feast of Tents. The Jewish people carried out this tradition as a memorial to their time in the wilderness, where they also lived in tents and were led by God into the Promised Land. So that they could follow that cloud by day and that pillar of fire by night. And therefore, in line with this important event, there was a ceremony that took place that everyone knew about and everyone looked forward to. It was the lighting of these huge candelabras. So this would be the, the temple during Jerusalem's, the time of Jerusalem during Jesus' day. And do you see those four candelabras inside that court in front of the Holy of Holies there? Well, they had these huge candlesticks that they would light these huge candelabras on the first day of this festival. There was a big parade that went in and and carried out this ceremony. And those candelabras stayed lit for those eight days of the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Lights. That's why it's sometimes called the Festival of Lights 
And that was to remind them of that pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness to the way of deliverance into the promised land that God had promised. Now, that's important to really capture that picture, to to get the full effect of what happens in John chapter 8. So for now, I'm going to leave that up there because I want you to have that image in your mind as we read this passage together. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 19. That's not true. Start, let's start in verse 1. Verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again into the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. And what then do you say? And when they were saying this, testing him in order that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman was with him where she had been in the midst. You see, the people who brought forth this woman in adultery did so right here in the court of women where those candelabras. If you could imagine, I have in my mind's eye that Jesus was sitting on those steps and he was teaching the people. It was a very common place together because it was accessible to both men and women. And here is where Jesus sat down to teach. There were lots of people. It was a popular place during a very special occasion. And all eyes were on Jesus. And this is where the scribes and the Pharisees came and deposited this adulterous woman. The text makes it very clear that despite the fact that they came under the illusion asking Jesus to interpret the law, in fact, they were not seeking justice at all. They were looking to discredit Jesus. Their question was a trap. You see, if Jesus ignores the law that requires that this woman be stoned to death, then he is condoning her immoral behavior and therefore becomes an enemy to God's truth. On the other hand, if he calls for her execution and they carry that out against the law of Rome, which says that the Jews are not able to carry out capital punishment, then he becomes an enemy to the ruling government. It's a lose-lose situation. This is a well thought out trap so instead of saying anything the scripture tells us that jesus was silent he simply knelt down and began to scribble in the sand now there's all kinds of speculation as to what jesus was writing in the sand my personal opinion is it's a serious waste of time the scripture doesn't tell us and so If it doesn't tell us, it must not be relevant. But what is relevant, because of what the Scripture said, is that Jesus was silent. 
This woman, it says in verse 4, was caught, quote, in the act. Which means that there were two people involved. Two people were identified. But only one woman was brought forth. These men were pretending to be concerned about the law, but in fact they were ignoring what it said in order to use it as a weapon. Their motives were impure. And so the light of Christ will now shine to reveal what is hidden in their heart. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, the law requires that the witnesses are the ones who must carry out the stoning. And so Jesus essentially says, if the witnesses would please come forward, and let me ask the one who stands innocent before all these people, you be the one to cast the first stone. And one by one, the scripture says, beginning with the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stones and walk away. They dropped their stones because they dropped all charges. But Jesus has just revealed that they were just as guilty as she was. No one, no one stood blameless before the law that they were using to condemn this woman. And now she's left alone. Look at what Jesus says as he is there with her. She says in verse 10, And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they now? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way from now on. Sin no more. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. You see, Jesus did not come to condemn. Now, clearly, that's what these men came to do, wasn't it? They came to condemn. And they used the law as the weapon with which to carry out their judgment. But not Jesus. These men were manipulating the law for a purpose that God never intended. And so Jesus corrects their misguided motivation and reestablishes the purpose of the law. He says, I do not come to condemn. I am the light sent to reveal that which is hidden in the dark so that you might have life. And that's exactly why God gave us the law. That's why Paul would tell the Romans that the law is holy. The commandments are righteous and good. Their purpose is to reveal what is hidden. That when left unattended brings death. So that we can turn to the light and find life. When I was in the hospital, there was a new technology that was developed at the time called the PET-CT. This was a huge advancement in, in cancer treatment. And one of the reasons is, is because cancer cells do something very well. They hide. They're hard to detect. 
And if you look at just a normal image taken from like a CT alone or an MRI, and even the best radiologist can, can look at what looks like normal tissue, and he'd be staring right at cancer cells and never know it. But the PET-CT changed all that because it identified cancer cells not based on what they look like, but how they acted. As you probably know, they inject a a radioactive dye. And and what this dye does is it goes to rapidly developing, dividing cells like cancer cells. It, It targets those tissues and then accumulates in those spots. So when you look at the PET CT, you see these bright lights shining. In fact, if you look at just the PET scan alone, it's a black film. You can't see anything except these bright white spots like lights that are shining in the dark. You take that image and you merge it with the anatomy of a CT, and now you can see exactly where the cancer cells are, even if they're hiding. So let me ask you something. If you have cancer... Is the PET CT evil? No. The PET CT is a blessing. It reveals what is hidden. So the doctors have a fighting chance to cure the cancer that is diseased inside the body without which they are working blind. Well, the law and the commands of God are intended to do the same. Their job is not simply to pronounce death, But the goal of God's law is to reveal what is hidden so that it may be possible to save your life. Paul said to the Romans, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. Only when the light of the law lit up my life, Paul says, did I realize that I was covered up in coveting. I was a dead man walking, and it was the law that revealed that I was utterly sinful. But like the PET CT, the law is only diagnostic. It can identify the problem, but it can't do anything to fix it. That's why Paul would also write to the Romans, and he would tell them what the law could not do, God did. By sending his son as an offering for sin. You see, sin is the disease. The law can identify it. But Jesus Christ is the only cure. He's the only cure. What the law could not do, God did. By sending his only son for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when Jesus stands before the people and he says, I am the light of the world, that's what he wants you to know. He did not come to condemn, but to save. The light of his life reveals God's presence. The light of his life illuminates God's truth. The light of his life exposes sin and leads us to the way of salvation. He who follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of eternal life. That's good news, isn't it? And so with that in mind, I want us to consider what it means, what what change it makes in our life when we have a relationship with the light of the world. At least for me, as I think about that, there are three things that immediately stand out. 
confession, obedience, and witness. Confession, obedience, and witness. These are the things that manifest themselves, that change the way we live when we have abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, let's start with confession. It's what I'll call bringing it into the light. And turn, if you will, to 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. A very familiar passage, and I believe probably one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. This verse is very familiar to us all, and in isolation from its context, it appears, it appears to be a conditional clause. It says this, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, in isolation, it appears as if we earn our forgiveness through confession. But in the context, we see that that's not what it says at all. You see, John is writing to make a comparison between those who walk in the light and those who walk in darkness. Those who have fellowship with God through relationship with Jesus Christ and those who are in rebellion. And so to clarify the difference in these two groups, he compares and contrasts the qualities of their life. So if you go back to verse 6 in 1 John, you'll see that it looks at the first group and said, for those who say they have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, that these people lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, so that's one group. Then he goes to verse 7 and says to another group, but those who walk in the light as God is in the light, They have fellowship with the Father because of the sacrifice of the Son through which they find forgiveness of sin. Now back to the first group in verse 8. But those who say they have no sin, well, they're the ones who are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. Now verse 9. Those who are in fellowship with God, those who are walking in the light, they are the ones who confess their sins knowing that they are forgiven in Christ and cleansed of all unrighteousness. You see, I believe the point of 1 John 1, 9 is that those who follow Christ are people of confession. They are people who understand the gospel and the promise of forgiveness that is found in Christ alone. And that understanding even extends into the relationships that they have with one another. That's why James will later write and say, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. He says that because hiding your sin makes your heart sick. We need to encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ to find healing in the good news of the gospel. The gospel truth that says that there is no sin greater than the magnitude of God's loving forgiveness. And that those who are repentant before the cross will always, always find forgiveness in His grace. And when we have found that to be true, the way we live our life should look different. Your relationship with the light of the world gives you confidence in your confession, allowing you to approach the throne of grace with confidence. And it will lead you down a path of obedience so that you will no longer walk in darkness, 
goes back to that passage in Psalm 119, 105, where it said, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What this tells me is that in and of ourselves, we have no ability to stay on the right path. Like the Israelites in the wilderness. If God's light did not guide them, they'd still be wandering around. I'm pretty convinced of it. You know what? The same is true for you and I. This weekend, I made a quick trip to the mountains. One of my favorite things in the world, to go backpacking with some guys. And uh, we got a little later start than we had anticipated. We didn't leave Lubbock until about 6 o'clock. And so we didn't get to the trailhead of where we were going to be backpacking until midnight. So it's pitch black outside, and as we... About the only thing we could see was a sign in front of us where we parked that said, no camping. (laughs) Okay? So we really only had one choice. All right, boys, strap on the backpacks and let's hit the trail. So we did. We put on our backpacks, put on our headlamps, and walked for the next two hours on a trail none of us had ever been on before. Walking by the light of that lamp at our feet. And for two hours, we trekked along that trail until we found a safe place to on level ground, and we camped for the night. But if it wasn't for those lights, we would never have found our way. And one of the things that we realized on our way back as we backtracked that same area that we didn't see in the night was that there was a long drop-off on the other side of that trail. Never saw it. But we were completely safe because we were walking by the light of the lamp at our feet. Well, in a similar way, you and I can only walk a path of obedience in the light of God's word as he guides our steps. We live in a very dark world. And we simply cannot, we cannot navigate through this life without walking by the light of God's presence. In other words, we're only on the right path when we choose to follow the light of the world. And let me suggest here that sometimes that light, at the light of, uh, that lamp at the light of our feet only allows us to see the next few steps in front of us. I know some of you who are here this morning, I know your stories, and I know you are in some dark places. And it can be overwhelming. And, and if you're like us, when we, were, when we were walking that trail, we were trying to look some, some distance ahead of us, but we couldn't see. We couldn't see that far in front of us. And I know a lot of you are in situations where you're doing the same thing. You're in a place where you're thinking, how in the world are we going to get through this? I can't see to the other side. There's no end in sight. And the temptation when we find ourselves in these situations is to be paralyzed by fear, or even worse, choosing not to to wait on the Lord and to walk on without Him. But let me encourage you to choose a different way. You may be only able to see a a few feet in front of you, just enough to take the next couple of steps. But that's okay. Keep walking by the light of the lamp at your feet. It is the safest place you could be. (laughs) Pull in close to the light of God's presence. Wait on the Lord and trust that He will show you the way. Finally, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll finish up with this. Having looked at the fact that 
in our relationship with the light of the world, it brings us to a place where our sin is brought into the light. We walk in the light. And finally, in John, or Matthew chapter 5, we see that we reflect His light. Verse 14 says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I like to combine this verse with my favorite passage, my life passage, if you want to look at it that way, Ephesians 2.10, where it says that, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. When these two verses are combined, it teaches us that when you see good works in my life, they are not works of Todd, they are works of God. The path that His light is leading me down as I walk in fellowship with Him is filled with good works that He designed just for me. So that as I live in the way that He's designed me for, my life brings Him glory. That means that my witness for Christ is fundamentally found in my walk with Christ. If I have no walk, I have no witness. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Good works that God prepared beforehand so that you may walk in them. And in seeing those good works, they may glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because they are His works in your life designed just for you. With that in mind, let me encourage you to take some time this week to go before the Lord in the light of His presence and let Him examine your heart. And as you do, I want to ask you to uh, take into that time three questions. And if you would, go ahead and write these down. Three questions that I encourage you to take before the Lord. Here's the first question. Is there sin that is hidden in my heart that needs to come into the light? Is there sin that is hidden in my life that needs to come into the light? Remember, Christians live lives of confession, approaching the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that they find forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. They confess their sins to one another, pray for one another so that they may be healed. Ask yourself, is that me? Is that me? Second question, is God's Word guiding my life? Is God's Word guiding my life? Is the Bible, the light on your path, leading the way you walk? Especially when you go into a dark place. And you go through difficult times. Is that the light that you're turning to? Because there's a lot of options. <laughs> there's a lot of false lights. But there's only one true light. Is that where you go? The light of God's Word. And then finally, does my life reflect the answers I've given to the first two questions? <laughs> does my life reflect the answers I've given to the first two questions? I have no witness If I have no walk. Telling your story of redemption begins with living that story of redemption. If your life is not being changed, what grounds do you have to stand on to tell someone else how God changes your life? Their life. Your story of redemption begins with living 
the story of redemption. So, go to the light of the world. He's full of grace and truth. And let your light shine so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. God, thank you for revealing yourself, for the desire for us to know you so that we can draw into a more meaningful relationship in a way that that literally changes our life. I pray for each person here that they will, in fact, take the time to go before you in your presence and ask these three questions, and that they will be still and be quiet and listen to what your light reveals in their life that might draw them closer to you and impact the way they both live and view life around them. Father, thank you for being the light of the world because without your navigating presence in our life, we will be lost. The sin that ultimately causes our death would never be seen. But your light is the light of life. And may we find that life in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.